rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. This is Bob Hutchins. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. Today we've got a very special guest, uh, someone that I've read and followed from afar, but I get the privilege today to talk to Brad Jerzak uh, face-to-face uh, as on Skype. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I wasn't prepared with my camera to, for him to see me, so all he can do is, is uh, hear my voice. Welcome, Brad, to Rumors of Grace. Thanks for having me. Rumors of Grace. That sounds good. Sign me up. So I've read your books um, uh, and I love them. I love your journey. I love your story. Um, you you seem to be on a lot of podcasts. Anybody who's interested in searching your name can find you. Um, so kudos to you for get, for for getting out there and and telling your story because I think it not only I think is it, it's a beautiful story of grace, but also um, your mind and and the way that you've journeyed and unpacked and reconstructed and deconstructed and, and all those buzzwords that we hear. You've done it so beautifully, uh, but also intelligently, um, skillfully. Uh, and that's what I love about your about your writing. So uh, I just want to say thank you for that, because it does it touches a lot more people than probably you even realize. Well, thanks for that. You might want to get my family's opinion on all of that, too. <laughs> it was uh, sometimes sometimes less beautiful, but... Um, and and some of my wounds uh, smeared blood on them probably, but anyway, uh, yeah, here we are. Club, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there is this this wonderful thing about like um, when you've had to receive great mercy. Uh, if you're not a complete dullard, then you realize the obligation to share that mercy with others. And so, uh, any mercy that you hear through me or in me, and I, I kind of take that as a big theme. Is, um, is something I've received from my healing people, my family, those who've been patient with me. So I'm just doing my best to pay it forward. Mm. That's great. Well, that's a great segue into um, your life and kind of your walk. Uh, you and I are similar age. Uh, I know that we are both brought up in a kind of a Baptist background, um, but you didn't stay there. Uh, first of all, you're you're in Abbotsford, Canada. So let's kind of get the geography right. Did you grow up in Canada? I grew up in central Canada. I was born in Winnipeg, which is just a couple hours north of Minneapolis. Mm. And then I moved to a small town also in Manitoba, probably 12 miles from the the uh, Peace Arch border crossing in North Dakota. So my childhood right up to college was was as a prairie boy who enjoyed thunder showers and so on and uh, dust bowls and you name it but i married west and so i've been in i've been in this rainforest called british columbia for well more than half my life now wow um so you never lived in the states or you did at some point no never lived outside of canada okay well talk to me a little bit about your growing up i mean uh what 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 kind of family did you grow up in and and where did you go and get on the track to be uh in the i guess quote ministry and church life what what was that trajectory for you yeah i spent the first probably 20 years of my life in a baptist 
setting with uh, wonderful, faithful parents. They weren't in the ministry, but they were always deeply involved in, in church life. And so, some of the great gifts they gave me was, uh, you know, a love for Scripture, a love for prayer, a love for Jesus. Um, to me, that was a very real experience, mm. a very good experience. And in some ways, they also tempered uh, aspects of my intrinsic fundamentalism. So, for example, um, when revivalism came through, um, they taught me to be more open to the Holy Spirit than our cessationist doctrine would normally um, account for. And then on the other hand, uh, probably I bought in far more into that dispensational Armageddon left behind theology because I was a fascinated little kid listening to that sure. stuff. And um, I don't know that they really drank the Kool-Aid so heavily as that. But um, uh, probably in terms of call to ministry, you know, some of that happened through um, just observing the the great zeal with which my parents shared good news. And it really was generally good news what they shared. And also, I had a profound dream when I was like, oh, six years old, that was uh, a call to to sort of evangelism slash missions and it was a it was a funny combination of a episode of Popeye <laughs> and these cannibals but also me <laughs> sharing sharing my faith as as clearly as I knew at the time and um, and uh, I was committed to that also when I was awake although more shy about it and more overwhelmed because also there was that hell message that just was so perturbing to me mm. So was that, uh, I mean, so 20 years in, in, in kind of a, a conservative Baptist setting, and, yep. and then did you go to college? Did you go to Bible college? What, what was your after, after life? Did you have brothers and sisters, first of all? Yeah, I had a younger brother who, he's now with the Vineyard Church, and he's, he's an elder there, and he is a nurse, and he ended up establishing uh, an AIDS hospice in Winnipeg, and so I'm very proud about him or of him for that. Uh, I did go, I went off to Bible college. My dad had, had talked me into taking one year just to lay a foundation for other things I might do in life. And I got hooked into the whole idea of teaching the gospels. Mm. And so I ended up staying past one year. I stayed for four years. And that, that time I met Eden, who's now my wife. Uh, we got married after that. So that was in central Canada at a also a conservative Bible college, but it was interdenominational. So um, through them, I met her, and she grew up in a conservative Mennonite church, although they had this kind of Jesus people wave that had come through. Mm. And ultimately, that church invited me to come out west, and where uh, I was a pastor in her home church for 10 years, uh, youth, young adults, outreach, all of that. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? What, how was it different than, than your upbringing? Uh, it surprised me how different in the sense that it was a little more ethnic. So I always felt like, yeah, I wasn't born for this. You know, the, <laughs> the Mennonites can be feel like Jews in the sense that they both have faith and a people group. Okay. Uh, but still, um, I fell in love with youth, youth ministry and, and what some of the differences were. You notice it over the course of a decade. They, they preach way more from the Gospels and mm -hmm. the Sermon on the Mount, whereas as Baptists who are really into grace theology, uh, in retrospect, I see we spent a lot more time with 
the Apostle Paul and his epistles. Right. So when you're being bombarded week after week after week with the Jesus story, it's really good for the soul, and you fall in <laughs> love with him. And also, um, although they were pretty conservative, we became friends with the Langley Vineyard down the road, and so I was introducing some of their stuff into our youth and young adults context, which would include praying for the sick, um, learning to listen to the voice of God, but most especially um, learning the ropes of inner healing work. And that Mm -hmm. was super important as as a youth pastor dealing with, let's say, youth who'd been molested or sexually assaulted. We had a lot of that kind of come our way. The reason why that was so important to me is because that it was in the context of inner healing that I felt I first encountered Christ as a living person, and I mm-hmm. could work with him in a very tangible way that where um, you would get in these three-way conversations where I would ask Jesus a question, and then he would answer my question to the person I was praying with, and then they would share what he had said, and then we would see dramatic transformation in their lives. And so I, I continue to do that kind of work to this day. What's that? 30 years later, I guess. That's beautiful. Um, so that's that's one of the things that's carried on through your whole life and your whole you know, church ministry, et cetera. And so what was the what was the experience overall, positive, negative in the Mennonite environment? And then what led you to the next stage? And next denomination. Yeah, um, I would say overall that that Mennonite experience was really good because I adopted a more gospel center gospel. Um, we had a lot of space uh, to experiment with sort of the small C charismatic and inner healing work, and uh, also uh, I learned I learned the value of of practicing mercy and justice as part of the gospel, not just an application on the side. And so, um, I don't have a lot negative to say about that time. Um, there was a painful, a painful um, kind of overthrow of my, my beloved senior pastor at one point, but he was an amazing man because uh, he taught us that when that happens, you don't always just leave. And so, he said, you know, I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to interfere with church politics. I'm going to bear these wounds, and this church will heal me of them. And he goes to that church to this day, and he's he really showed me uh, what it is to take up your cross and follow Jesus uh, in the face of uh, some of that opposition was just he refused to shut me down, and he defended me, and I think I got him in a lot of trouble in that sense with a few uh, of the power brokers at the time. And so that's long behind us now, but I'm so glad I was there for 10 years. They changed my life. Mm. So I know in listening to to some of, some of the other podcasts that you've been on, Brad, there was, uh, I know that you reached a, a period in your in your ministry and, and in church work and pastoral uh, work that, that you reach, I don't know if you'd call it burnout, I don't know if you'd call it hitting a wall, but, but talk a little bit about that. Okay, so um, after, after 10 years with the Mennonites, my wife and I joined Brian and Sue West, some good friends of ours, uh, and we planted a church called Fresh Wind. Um, Brian and I co-led that for a while, and then I took it on myself. Um, and so I was, really, I was pastoring there for 10 years, and that church was very focused on people on the margins, including people with disabilities mm. in full-time care. That was one-third of the church. 
Uh, we had a lot of, uh, we had the poor, we had addicts, uh, a lot of addicts for a time, um, some homeless, and then, and a good number of children. And it was, it was like utopia in some ways, because it was just all these people gathering together in love, and they were getting transformed too. A lot of them uh, were trained then to do the kind of inner healing work we were doing, and and then functioning that way in in recovery houses, and um, and then and then in 2008 it all went to hell, <laughs> uh, or I did at least. But we had what happened was we had a whole series of tragedies in 2008. So I'd been in ministry there for 10 years, and I guess you would call it burnout. But I, I want to be careful with that word because some people just mean, well, I got tired or I overworked. That's not really how burnout works. Um, burnout is often it's going to have medical symptoms, and it's often rooted in a a, a, a dysfunctional sense of responsibility. And mm. so while I had been now doing like pastoral work for 20 years and I knew how to move out of the way and let Jesus take over, um, that started shifting when we started accumulating a lot of deaths and other kinds of tragedies that year. And um, so, so, so a lot of the disabled folks were dying. Uh, we had overdose deaths. We had, we had some scandalous stuff. We had, and I wasn't doing well. I was... I was self-medicating with my own um, management addiction. And so I think what happens there is I developed a sense of responsibility that simply didn't belong to me. And that fried me fairly quickly. Mm. And so um, I just realized with all the tragedies we were facing, I wasn't trusting God anymore with them. I was trying to hold it all together and I was not convinced God was going to hold it all together. So you get these double binds and double binds really cause burnout. So a double bind would be, um, I, God's not holding it together. So I have to, well, that's nuts. That's just insanity. And then I have to hold it together, but I can't hold it together. And then I was pretty much bedridden. And the cool thing is then, my wife stepped in. Uh, they, The church invited my wife to be the lead pastor. And then I just, I spent the next years in recovery. And so mm. what recovery looked like for me was um, I lost myself in research for a bit. I, I was working on uh, on the Her Gates Will Never Be Shut book from my bed, largely. <laughs> um, and it gave me a break from my this Messiah complex I was developing. And also, um, I was learning for the next year. I thought, well, maybe I could work with as a Aboriginal relations consultant with a friend of mine. But that door just really didn't open. And so he trained me a lot for that year. But my conclu- conclusion was, I just I'm going to go do my PhD now. So again, three more years of research gave me a, some breathing space from that pastoral dysfunction I was in. Wow. Yep. And what what was that like for your family at the time and for your wife? I mean, you said your wife stepped up and um, which, you know, that's a pretty you just don't hear about that too much. When pastors step down, you don't hear their wife stepping up and taking over the church. What what was that experience like for you? Well, for me, it was uh, uh, we had to learn how to do that, because if if I treated it like, well, now I'm her consultant, it would just right. undermine her leadership. Sure. And if she tr- brought home all the troubles that had already buried me, I would just like fall apart. So we had a very good counselor who said, here's what you do. Um, 
Eden shouldn't tell you the business of the church, but if she needs support, she doesn't need consultation. She needs a hug. And so she would just come home and say, yeah, I'm pretty overwhelmed today. I'm like, can I give you a hug? And I give her a hug. And that's how we function. But also, like, she's just this epic person. You, you just can't even believe it. And so she's, she's caring for our household. She was caring for our kids. And the church had asked her, she wasn't looking to be the leader, but the church felt like the Lord had said, we need you to do it and to just be a mama. So um, I don't know if you've seen the Shaq movie, but she's like yeah. the white version of Papa. <laughs> and like great. incredible. And so I watched her grow in grace and that was very fascinating to me. And she, she um, really blessed what I was doing in terms of, yeah, go get your PhD. And, and, um, and that was thankfully also like um, mostly a research degree. Yeah. So I could do yeah. that from home and she'd go buy it, let me buy all the books I needed. And I'd go back hide in my coffee shop or whatever. And, and um, now, now you really said was writing, healing. Yeah, you're writing the book, uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which yep. I love that book. And for those who haven't read it, that that's your really uh, exploration and, and theological kind of position on, you know, does God uh, and does Scripture teach, you know, everlasting conscious torment in hell or does it? Um, and talk to me about that. Was that something that had been on your mind for a while? Did this experience of burnout and being bedridden and just being broken, um, just further, you know, was, was there something there that was connected with that, that this, that this book was birthed out of? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I would say it started when I was a little kid with sort of the traumatizing way I heard the gospel, even at Bible camp, where they would, you know, can you imagine having your hand in the campfire for a billion years? And well, no. <laughs> well, then pray this prayer. Okay, I will. And then, okay, so I'm in. But what about all my cousins who are now going to burn in hell forever? What about all the people down at McDonald's? And I'd look around on a Sunday morning and they weren't in suits, so they must not be Christians, and all these people, and now that's on me. So, so um, I, at the time, I accepted that eternal conscious torment in an, in an everlasting lake of fire was a fact. That's partly what motivated me as evangelist. It's partly what overwhelmed me as a sensitive child and, and also gave me that weird sense of responsibility, right? Their blood is on your hands kind of right. thing. Then, um, when I was, you know, in the early 90s, I probably, I, I realized, okay, God doesn't want anyone to go there, and nobody has to go there. So, again, we'll tell them the gospel, so no one ha and we'll tell them that. You don't have to go there. God doesn't want that. You just say the prayer. And, um, and then John Stott came out as an annihilationist, and he was like this quintessential British evangelical, and for him to say... Uh, eternal conscious torment would be a gross, disproportional punishment for one lifetime, and he could, he could no longer accept that. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. This would not be fair. And now here was an evangelical saying, I'm allowed to not believe in eternal conscious torment. So probably, um, you know, at some point in the 90s, I, I adopted a kind of annihilationism. And then 
just to bring you back up to speed then, so I get to 2008, 2009, and I'm, I'm in my own little hell. Mm. And, um, and I'm also having all these conversations with people who would either say one of two things. I, I am ready to follow Jesus, but I can't because of this hell message. Mm. I can't believe in that kind of God. That's an irony, hey? <laughs> yeah. They, if there were such a hell, telling them about it is what sends them there because that's why they reject Christ. And then the other was dear friends of mine, Christians in our church, even those who'd been part of the church plant saying, I'm, I'm thinking about abandoning Christianity because although I love Jesus, I can no longer believe in eternal conscious torment. So I think I'm just going to throw, check the whole thing. I'm like, hang on a second. <laughs> Let's go double check at least, right? And so I was multitasking, double-checking that question. Is this a deal killer? Is eternal conscious torment a required dogma of the faith for you to be a Christian? And also I wanted to experiment on whether I was ready to do PhD-level research. And I feel like I succeeded in doing that with this. I I found things that I thought were uh, primary source stuff that others hadn't uncovered yet. And so... Uh, and so it's funny to be thinking like you can see how fragmented I was, <laughs> yeah. Um, both in terms of like I'm suffering this kind of weird burnout, but at the same time, you know, I'm I'm totally in my head working on the research, and yet not far away from my love of evangelism, really. So that all came together. That converged then, and just uh, in terms of timing, this was about one year before. Um, Love Wins came out by Rob Bell. And <laughs> I remember when it came out, everyone just like, farewell, Rob Bell. You ask all these questions and you have no answers. And and I'm like, hang on, I already asked these questions and I even did the research for you. The answers are all here. But, you know, I probably sold 10,000 books instead of 10 million, so it didn't really matter. <laughs> has, the book continued, has the book continued to sell since then? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, it's a lot of books came out after Rob's book and, and, um, over 10 years. So it's 10 years now. And I, I think I, you know, I don't get huge royalty checks, but it's selling as much now as it did that first year. And I think partly it's become a go-to book on the topic because I'm, um, I give a lot of good data that people can just look at and go, okay, how do I feel seeing all this data side by side? And I'm not super dogmatic in it. I'm like, here's where I kind of come out, make your own mind up. So, so, um, it gets a lot of recommends for that reason, I guess. And how is that, how has that particular book been received overall? Obviously there's a lot of fans of it, but did, did you ever get much pushback? Um, I would say like not, not by people some have read it like many times and then I'll get specific pushback on um, on elements of it so they're like okay you've got this contemplative chapter on the rich man and Lazarus but hey doesn't this obviously say that you can't have a post-mortem conversion so um, so I wrote an article about that that's online called layering the rich man and Lazarus. Mm. And I think I would probably put that in the book now or supplement the book with it. And, and, um, what really bugs me is that having written the book, 
I have never once written or spoken on the topic without clarifying I'm not a universalist. Mm. Never once. So I just did it again, right? And what what bugs me is, is uh, 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 fundamentalist folks from the conservative right have, have deliberately slandered me about that, and just they they spread it around that I'm a universalist, and I'm like, you know, guys, that's slander and. In my theology, this isn't true, but in your theology, slanderers go to hell. <laughs> so just say it. <laughs> um, and, and so I've got an article about that called Who You Call in a Universalist. That's also mm. online, and that's been online for years and years. And so I guess if people are afraid of universalists, that should help them. But um, because I don't believe in eternal conscious torment, and because I do believe that Christ has conquered death, so death doesn't get the last word, and all could respond to Jesus willingly. And because I'm hopeful that when they see him face-to-face, of course they will, then I, you can see why some folks might think I'm a universalist. I just don't like the term because it's so often associated with those who say, Jesus doesn't matter, the cross doesn't matter, sin doesn't matter, there is no judgment, and all of that stuff. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, in terms of historically, I line up with guys like Maximus the Confessor and George MacDonald and, and folks who see a path to potential ultimate redemption, um, but that absolutely requires the work of Jesus. He's the means by which that could happen. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I know for a lot of us who question that, who's been brought up on it, brought up in it, and still very prevalent, obviously, in, in many evangelical and fundamental circles. Um, it's what drives uh, the the desire for so many people to 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 go on living. Even you know, it's what what's your purpose on this earth? Oh, to save souls and from hell and bring as many people to the heaven. Um, it's almost like when you remove that, and when you go about taking, when you remove that chip from the game. Um, it is a game changer. Um, yeah. It, and it can go one of two ways. It's like, f- for some, if you remove it, I mean, they just walk away. And, or they go, like, they'll go, why Jesus or or why evangelism? So in the afterward to that book, I, I just say, look at, t- my response to that is, A, have you not met Jesus yet? <laughs> like he's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me. I don't need fear of hell to make me want to be in this love union with him. There's nobody like him. I, if there's no afterlife at all, I'd still, I'm in, I'm all in. Cause I've met, I've met the one. And then, and um, second, I would say, why evangelism? Don't watch the news like this. The world is in hell, and and Christ wants to rescue us from that, and He can, and 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 people are in hell, and they're already perishing, and He's not come to condemn the perishing; He's come to rescue the perishing, and He wants to, uh, you know. So I'm just thinking, it's incredibly selfish to think of it in terms of, you know, purely, purely about hell avoidance. And in fact, I want to also say, people don't believe in that anyway. They believe that they believe it, but if they really believed it, they'd never go on a holiday again. You would not risk letting anybody on your block go to hell. You wouldn't watch TV in the evenings. That's not worth a billions of billions of years of of your neighbor burning. So, like, I just don't 
know that I've ever met anyone who actually believes in hell. They just believe in the doctrine of it. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, talk to me a little bit about the psychology that goes along with that. For you, you know, you say you've been thinking and questioning this from a little kid, but uh, over the years in your own ministry, and we're going to get to where you are now and what you're doing, because I think that's a beautiful part of the story as well. But for those who have read your book and those you've talked to and maybe counseled with in your churches, when they're able to let that go, um, what kind of transformations are you seeing, good, bad, and different? Yeah, it. so it all hinges on if they know Jesus. So when they don't know Jesus, then letting go of hell just gives them their exit ramp because they weren't, it wasn't, their, their Christianity wasn't based in faith in Jesus. It was based in fear of hell. So it's so, more, so what it's more or less of, uh, us ah, see there, I knew it was BS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do see some of that. It's like, Oh, or it can just become a very kind of vague kind of God. Of course, I be- I'm a theist now. I believe in God, and everybody's good, and we're all just it'll all work out in the end. So, um, so, so it can re- the fears, and this is one of the great fears in, of the early church fathers. Why even the ones who believed in ultimate redemption of all, they didn't want to preach a kind of universalism that would that would cause immature people to just walk away because they did, and I see that all the time. But I also see people walking away because they think our, our, our Christianity is ridiculous and retributive and evil. And I'm like, I would – so um, whereas in like the 1800s, maybe preaching hell would cause people to stay Christian, I would say today uh, preaching hell causes more people to become atheists. So if we're talking like a net gain or net loss – um, we're way better off doing what the apostles did in the book of Acts. Not once do they ever preach a gospel that includes the threat of hell. Not once. So it should bother us that our preaching is so incredibly unbiblical, that it it is not recognizable when you compare it with the evangelists of the book of Acts. Uh, that's really troubling. Now, I want to say on the positive side then, that there are those who are perpetually tormented by fear and nightmares, mm. by the prospect of an eternal lake of fire. And and because of that, even though they may stay Christian, they how could they possibly trust a God like that? There will always be something in the back of their minds that just doesn't trust that God as a father. It's a judge to be saved from rather than a father that you run to. And so when when we begin to open the scriptures and double check what's actually there, and um, while I'm not a universalist, I can point to at least 32 good universalist passages that are just right. cause a thousand pounds to come off of their, their hearts and, and fear flees. And they instead of walking away from Jesus, they actually finally can trust him and love him. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it and it also when you stop worrying about who's who's going to hell and who's not, who's in and who's out, um, that is a that w- what so many of us don't realize what a burden that is to our psyche. Yeah, Be- because every for all of your life, you're always engaging with people and seeing them as projects, seeing them and wondering and questioning in the midst of com- uh, relationships. 
with them, whoever it may be, is are they in or out? Will they be in hell and I be in heaven? And that's tormenting, and it's it, it's so overwhelming at times. When you remove that element from it, um, what a beautiful freedom to be able to just love people uh, as human beings, as fellow human beings. And uh, to me, that's that's the most freeing thing from that. Yeah, and that's not to say that there's no sub- summons to respond. It's just a completely different one. And so, exactly. for example, when I work with 12-step recovery, um, like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, all of that, uh, I love their invitation. It is instead of like, you need to do this or else, it's what they're invited to is um, God loves you so much. He cares about you and he forgives you. Um could I invite you to surrender to that kind of love? Could I invite you to experience that kind of love? And and people are getting set free through this invitation to a real loving care that they are that they know they need and the kind of belonging that they have in in the father's house that that they're actually looking for. And instead of me selling them sort of a a catalog bride from another planet, um, I'm, uh, we're inviting them into a kind of love that makes an actual difference and is embodied by us, if if we can do that. And so... Mm, that's beautiful. So I'm still an evangelist. I'm just a lot freer to be one now, because I, I know it's about a love that is here now, that they can receive here now for the needs they have here now. And it's mm. very much like John chapter 3. So did this understanding then lead you, uh, because now you're in the more orthodox uh, uh, faith and teaching at a college there in Canada, and, and I'm assuming you're in pastoral ministry as well there? or No, not in pastoral ministry anymore. Um, my, my roles right now, I, I edit a magazine and a couple blogs, and, um, and I'm the dean of the ministry studies at St. Stephen's University in in St. Stephen, New Brunswick on the East Coast. So that's a modular program where people can come and study just for two weeks per semester. And um, and then and then we have a travel module. So they, I only have to go there when the students go there. Oh, nice. Otherwise, I'm at home writing and, and editing. And, um, but in terms of then local ministry, um, I am a preacher at the abbots at the um, Orthodox monastery in Dudney, mm. and I, I, you know, I'm not on staff there or anything like that. I'm just one of the lay preachers, and then I also uh, I also attend twelve step groups in town, and so all my front lines ministry stuff would be would be um, as a lay person. And then I also do a fair bit of traveling to to teach seminars and stuff on the books and themes that we're talking about. What what led you to to gravitate toward orthodoxy? I know that it certainly resonates with your own journey and where you've arrived on your views of God and Scripture and Jesus and theology. But talk to me a little bit about how you go from a conservative Baptist kid, um, you know, pastoring in. Uh, a vineyard type and a church, a Mennonite church, and now here you are landing in orthodoxy, which uh, you couldn't be more opposite, I guess, if you're looking at the spectrums of Christianity. Yeah, that's kind of true. Um, I guess 
I guess there's two elements to that. One is theological, and one is has to do with practice, worship practice. So the first was, I, um, at some point in the early 2000s, I, I feel like my eyes were opened to the reality that there is not a retributive bone in God's body. Mm. Um, <laughs> that God in his nature and essence is love plus nothing, and that God is free to forgive, and he is not required to use violent punishment to assuage his justice somehow. That became more and more ridiculous to me, and yet I had two problems. <laughs> I had eternal conscious torment in a burning lake of fire. That's pretty damn retributive. And then on top of that, we had this theology of the cross. I love, I love the theology of the cross. It just so happened that ours was entirely retributive as well, that all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus to punish him for my sins in my place. And I'm told I caricature that. That's not true. I wrote a 185-page Master of Arts thesis defending that very thing, and I know what people preach about it because I did, and I, and I listened to it on the radio. Well, I try not to. And um, I, I know the popular preaching of penal substitution, and I'm not caricaturing it. It's about retribution and that God is not free to forgive apart from retributive punishment either uh, you know, either you go to hell or his son receives that punishment. And I'm just like, it's about I, child sacrifice. It's absolutely child, child sacrifice. And so, so uh, that's what, uh, as all of that was unraveling for me, that's when I met Archbishop Lazar, the, the abbot at this monastery. And I'm telling him about that. And he's like, well, I see your problem. You worship Molech. You may have heard that story before. And, um, and, and I'm like, wait a minute, are you saying that in the Orthodox Church, I don't have to believe in eternal conscious torment or penal substitutionary child sacrifice? And he, sa- he said, of course not. I'm like, and, and what appealed to me about that is like when I would raise these things among the Mennonites, for example, where it should be an easy sell, uh, sort of the neo-reform guys just jump all over you and call you a heretic. And I I, I I got in this conversation with Lazar, and he's like, why are you ducking in a foxhole when you could just come park in the harbor? And your ministry may still be out there, but you'd have a harbor where you're, where you're allowed to believe that God is love without remainder. And, and, uh, and, and I'm like, you mean I'm not a heretic? And he's like, no, no, because there's this impression that when you let go of eternal conscious torment and penal substitution, that now you're some kind of liberal. But here I got a guy in a you know full Orthodox regalia, and uh, telling me that the dogmas of the Christian faith from the beginning were not juridical. That means like this courtroom thing of punishment right. and judgment, but rather that it's therapeutic, like a hospital with a great physician who heals us of the things that produce our sin, and and that the cross is about forgiveness of sin, not punishment of sin. And that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not turning his back on Christ and charging the soldiers to flail him or something crazy like that. So, um, and I knew this stuff, you know, I I knew John Kelvin's works. I I studied them, I defended them, I preached them, and and I was a good five-point Calvinist for a little while. 
But this was like a breath of fresh air. It felt like mm. good news. felt like I heard the gospel for the first time in some ways. Or it felt reminiscent of when I was a little kid and my parents first told me about it before all the Armageddon stuff showed up. So that, that was a, that's the theological shift I made, and that's 15 years ago now, mm. even while I was still at Fresh Wind. So we preached all this stuff, the theology of it at Fresh Wind. Um, was it a, was it yeah. a was it an easy transition for your wife as well? Were you both learning this? You know, I kind of get the feeling that she was waiting for me <laughs> to see it myself, because <laughs> I could preach these gospel, this kind of a cold gospel that that is segmented away from the reality of human beings, and my wife can't do that. She's like, but we love people. And we would never do that to someone. And God is better than us. So mm, That's so good. So I would kind of gingerly tell her this stuff. And she's like, well, okay, finally. <laughs> you know, you've seen it. And um, so she's generally way ahead of me. Her only concern is who's going to hate us this time, you know. <laughs> yeah. What What do you feel like uh, I believe this and it could just be because of my own personal journey, but do you believe that more and more people are waking up to this and that there is a transformation as, as uh, was it Phyllis Tickle said that, that there's certainly something going on every 500 years in the church. Do you feel like um, this is something that is bubbling and brewing that, that people are hungry for, something more in realizing that maybe some of this doctrine of the past few hundred years um, may not be in line with the truth of, of who Christ is and who God is. Do you feel that? Oh, yeah. It's picking up steam in some ways, too. Like, for example, um, Kevin Miller created a movie called Hellbound, question mark. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was a documentary that re- really was rooted in my book. And or he was inspired by it and his own experiences. So we showed it at Trinity Western University and, you know, in a little theater room, maybe a couple hundred people showed up, maybe less. But at the end of it, I thought, how, having seen this movie, could anybody still believe in eternal conscious torment? Because if they know that, historically speaking, you don't have to. So we just did a little check. How many of you still believe in eternal conscious torment? And you know what? Maybe 60%. Okay, hang on a second. That means 40% didn't in an evangelical university. Um, 30 years ago, nobody would have put up their hand. You know, like, so So that's quite a shift right there from... from um, Zero percent to forty percent being able to say no, I've left that behind, but I'm still a Christian. So that's pretty amazing. I don't just—it's not just about hell, though, is it? It's like at the at the root of this, it is seeing that God is love, and I think yes. I think that 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 is like really got traction now. We've been singing it week after week after week across many faith traditions, even ones that say they still believe in a fiery torment in hell, at least that's an embarrassment to their theology of the God who is love that they sing about all the time. And that sinks in. And and uh, so I think we've seen something we can't unsee. Mm. I'm not even worried about that side of it now. Um, my worry, it's a real worry because it's based in observation. My worry is that those who've been able to walk away from fundamentalist Christianity, so many of them are walking away from Christ as well. And I just like, what? 
what are you doing? Don't do that. Haven't, and again, I ask, haven't you met him? And maybe yeah. they haven't. Maybe mm. they haven't. And what does meeting him look like? What does that mean? But if it's just like, I don't believe in this doctrine anymore, so I don't believe in the person anymore, that's like really throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So I'm, that's a concern I have for progressive Christianity is because it, it, it's, it could be Christless in the end, just as this was Christless in its own way. Don't you think, though, that I think some of the struggle that you're sensing from people, and I observe, and, and even in my own life, you know, you begin to unravel these things, and you read books that, that say you've written and other people have written, and, um, you know, whether it's Richard, Father Richard Rohr or, or, or any of these other, other people who are having giving in a, a deeply, deeply orthodox voice, but that's also very contrarian to most evangelical and conservative voices. Um, and you begin to say, hey, wait a second, there's there's another way to see this. Then what I think happens, and you're talking about progressives, is mm-hmm. you begin to then question all of Scripture, its authority, its inspiration. And then you realize, wait a second, maybe the people who who wrote it didn't fully understand, specifically the Old Testament, really understand God, and they saw him as retributive, and so they simply interpreted life and situations through the lens of, a, of like you said, Molech or other religions. So you begin to distrust it, and so mm-hmm. you, you're then left with something that can't be trusted because you were spun the lie that it's totally all from God, every word of it, and then you realize, well, maybe it's not, and then you're left with something saying, okay— then what do I do with this Jesus message and this the Gospels and how much of it is true, how much of it isn't? Jesus becomes very compelling and loving, um, but that's about it. Do, do you do, do you see how that where people could get get to that point? Absolutely, do I um. It's one of the reasons I teach patristics, which means the early church fathers, because. Because you can imagine them doing the same thing, you know, being part of Judaism, and then their Messiah comes along, and the, and the Jewish, uh, the Jewish temple establishment ends up murdering Christ, and so on. Well, what do you do with this? And do we toss everything then? And they're, they're, so their approach was not, I'm going to start with a Bible, and I'm going to believe what this community says about this Bible, and then eventually kind of get to Jesus, who sort of contradicts the Bible. <laughs> uh, that's not how they start. And it's um, where they start is this this phenomenon of of a people who aren't afraid of death anymore because they've encountered someone who's defeated death. So it begins with an encounter with Christ. That. And, and maybe in our modern times that doesn't work anymore. But what if it were like if you encounter people who have an inexplicable kind of self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love, and they live it? Mm. And you're like, why are you like this? It's like, I'm like this because I've seen the Lord. Well, what do you mean you've seen the Lord? And then they, you, you talk about the Jesus story and how that Jesus story of self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love has changed me. I mean, he's changed. I I know he's real because he's he's changed me. He's set me free. He's um, he's he's filling me with this thing. Do you want to meet him? So now I like I can I can do that. I could say, would you would you like to meet him? We can work that out. 
only having having some kind of encounter with the risen Lord, whether that's through uh, addiction recovery or through inner healing mm. or through whatever, where it's an encounter, mm. um, um, then we go to the scriptures and and we say, what are what is this book about? Oh, this book tells us the detail, the, the, like the details of his life, and and the backstory that get you there. He had mm-hmm. this, and that backstory includes a horrendous history of the people of God missing the point, doing terrible things in his name, not understanding really who God is, but then getting glimpse after glimpse after glimpse that uh, that end up pointing to Christ. So I think I think we're just in deep trouble with the Bible if it's not about how how it's it's all this thing that it's an epic that is climaxes in the in this person of Christ you wouldn't be offended if you read any you know lord of the rings and and um you're like well you know in the first book it says this so i i just you know i'm th- getting rid of the book it's like no no it's a whole story and the story is c- coherent and cohesive and it's got a purpose and direction and the purpose and direction the telos of this story is Christ why would we trip over things that people 3,000 years ago misunderstood about them? And perhaps it's even more genius than that. Perhaps they are a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and say, oh my goodness, we still miss the point. We're still going out and killing people in the name of God. We're still having like virtually religious services about the sacrifice of our children on the on the. <laughs> To the god of Mars, you know, militarism. And and you're like, we need the book of Joshua because the book of Joshua exposes the very dysfunctions we continue on, even though we are supposed to know who Jesus is. It's like, wow. So, and, and well, that's, Joshua, an that's an interesting perspective because what you're saying is Joshua isn't a book to encourage us and say, go do likewise. It's a right. book to say, here's what happens when you when you put God in the context of being on your side, you're the greatest nation and you can, it's okay to go and kill people in his name. Exactly. And not only, not only is Joshua meant to be read that way from the Christian perspective, but Joshua was written that way. If we take care to actually read the thing, it's absolutely not a promotion of genocide. It is the, it is the um, it is a critique of it, and it's like, well, I didn't know that. It's like, well, read the book then, you know. Like, um, so so I'm not one of these ones who's leaving the Old Testament on the shelf. I'm I'm like I'm like, oh my goodness, I I don't need a doctrine of its inspiration. I can just go look at it and go, this is beyond genius, and it's so prescient of our times right now. And it would be so helpful if we understood what it was exposing. Can you imagine somebody 3,000 years ago seeing through stuff we are being duped by right now today? I, I mean, like that, talk about inspiration. But again, it's not just about that. It, it raises this question, what is God really like? Well, he's not like that. Well, then what is he really like? And then Christ comes and he shows us. And then we kill him. <laughs> of course we do. That's what you do with you know, I'm always reminded. You know, you, you just said that about the book of Joshua, and one of the one of the very odd scriptures that's 
again, usually misinterpreted, but it speaks to exactly what you're just saying there. I believe it's in Joshua 5 where they're approaching this the, the city of Jericho and you know they encounter this supposedly angelic being yep. and Joshua said I believe Joshua says okay obviously you're on our side right uh, just verify can you verify that cuz you're not on their side whose side are you on right and the angel says I'm on neither yeah um Again, that's not a that's not a angelic or Christophany or a God representative endorsing uh, murder and destruction of a city. Yep. Yeah, that's that. I mean, that's one of the key ciphers to that whole book, and not just to understanding the book, but to reminding us. Oh my goodness! Uh, so is God on the Christian side or the Muslim side? Is God on the progressive side or the conservative side is God on, and you're like this whole us them either or win lose othering thing that we might call factionalism mm-hmm. tribalism is just incredibly self-defeating and self-destructive and God transcends that and that there's a passage right in Joshua 5 that tells you that from the get-go it's quite amazing yeah, that is amazing. That's that's amazing. That's beautiful. Well, listen, I don't want to take up a ton of your time. I know we could probably talk for hours on this subject, and we're just getting into it. But for for someone listening who's beginning to unravel some of these things and question them, and they're like, oh, no, I don't know if I can buy into this whole totally, but this guy sends a, sounds intelligent, where would you point them to? Uh, obviously, to your book, um, uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. Yeah, but what else can someone read or think about, or is there other writings you can refer them to? Yeah, I mean, that Her Gates Will Never Be Shut is specifically about the hell question, but I think what we need to do is go more fundamental than that and just say, what is God like? Mm. And and um, so in my book, A More Christ-Like God, what I propose is that God has revealed himself perfectly as love in the person of Christ, and that comes into clearest focus on the cross. So, A More mm-hmm. Christ-Like God, that's on Amazon. Um, but also, I'm doing a follow-up, two follow-up books to that this year, actually. Um, one is called A More Christ-Like Way, and it's going to say, okay, if if if, if that's our theology of what God is like, um, then what should our lives be like? What is what does Christ show us as the Jesus way of living Um lives of self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. So I'm in September, uh, the book should be out. Uh, it's just almost ready for the printer. And so that's called A More Christ-Like Way. And then I'm doing another one that's a bit a bit more radical called In. And it'll I, in that book, I'm exploring Christ's unique revelation of God's all-inclusive love. Mm. So you've got You've got the conservatives who get that Christ is exclu- the only way and all of that stuff, but they're, they're not so sure about all-inclusive love. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got the progressives who are like, yes, it's God's all-inclusive love. We're just not sure where Jesus fits in that anymore. And I'm like, oh, they, they cohere perfectly. And so uh, well, uh, we are in. Great. Yeah. And so that, I'm, that should be out this fall as well. I'm just doing layout on it now. That's amazing. And and if people wanted to connect with you in some way, do they go to bradjerzak.com or? Yeah, they could go to bradjerzak.com or I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, 
and I may I could just give you my email. It's bradjersak at gmail.com. There you uh, go. That's the best way to not get lost in the cracks of social media. Uh, and and like email. I said at the very beginning, you've done a great job on, of, of being generous with your time and your gifts. And so if anyone wants to just search your name, B-R-A-D-J-E-R-S-A-K, on, pod, on, on uh, iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, you can see Brett on several, many, many different podcasts and talking about different subjects around some of the things we talked about. Um, now, do you have a podcast yourself, Brad? I don't believe. No, so. I don't. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, I don't need one. <laughs> so um, that would limit. I, <laughs> yeah, I will say that uh, um, if they want to come study with me, have a look at ssu.ca. That's Saint Stephen's University, and .ca indicates Canada, because anybody around North America could come. Uh, study with me and travel with me uh, two weeks a semester in, in let's see, three modules at St. Stephen's for two weeks, plus one travel module to the Mediterranean with us, wow. and you would get a Master of Ministries. And so if you qualify for a master's course, you could do that. And then even if you don't have undergrad work, you could apply for a diploma in ministry, which would get you the same thing. Uh, and then we've just started a Master of Arts in Theology and Culture. And so all of that is, what I love about it is you don't have to move or quit your job. You just do the pre-readings, show up for two weeks, fall in love with the other students, go home and do your papers. And a few years later, you're, uh, you have a degree and an incredible experience that involves no indoctrination. We're, we're not a denominational school. It's a provincially chartered university. So... Um, give that a look if you're interested, ssu.ca. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Brad, for your time. Thank you for, thank you for your writings and sharing your life with us. I know um, it wasn't always easy and there was a lot of pain, but uh, as the title of this podcast, there is grace uh, in, and there's purpose in the brokenness. So we're so glad that, that you're here with us and you, that you spent the time with us today. So thanks again. Um, and we'll look forward to these books that are coming out. We'll keep an eye out on Amazon. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Bye-bye.